Amen. So let's then begin with our final look uh, at, at Jacob's life here in Genesis chapter 35, verses 16 through 29. It begins, Then they, being uh, Jacob or Israel and his family, journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel was in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And when she was in her hard labor, the midwife said to her, Do not be afraid, for now you will have another son. As her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. And so Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar at her grave. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the the tower of Ader. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali. The sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Paddan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had resided as aliens. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And Isaac breathed his last. He died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Jacob, buried him. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we give you praise for these stories that are in your scripture, Lord, for the Ways in which they speak into our lives. Lord, it has been a a joy, sometimes a painful joy, to journey with Jacob over these last ten weeks. But we thank you, Lord, for the ways in which you have illuminated in our own lives. The way that you work. Not just through those, Lord, who seem to be perfect, Lord, but also through those who are incredibly flawed. And I pray, Lord, that that will encourage us to know that you love to work with your people, no matter how faithful or how faithless at times we are. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth And the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So we've been traveling with Jacob over these last ten weeks. And uh, it's been an interesting journey. I was trying to kind of figure out why is it that so often, uh, or that this is such an intriguing story for us. I mean, Jacob's life, of course, is full of ups and downs, lefts and rights, starts and stops. And 
I realize that, of course, part of the reason why it probably resonates with us is that for most of us, our lives are very similar. Our lives are full of ups and downs, lefts and rights, starts starts and stops. And so there's so many different ways that we can connect with the story of Jacob. I was just remembering some of those over this past week. The second week of our study, you may, if you were here, you may remember that we talked about when Esau sold his birthright to Jacob and about the fact that, you know, all Esau wanted was that red, red, as we said. You know, he just wanted the stew. He wanted it right then. And, and Esau, it seemed, lived entirely in the present uh, without even thinking about the future. And we talked about the importance of holding these two things in tension, the present and the future. If you only live for the future, if that's all you're thinking about, then all you ever do is you just dream about what might be one day, and you don't ever actually live any kind of life. And if you only live in the present, then all too frequently you allow your own appetites to consume you and to destroy your future. So what does it look like for us to hold both of these things in tension. We, we also talked about Isaac and, and when he gave his blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And we, we remarked on the importance of asking the questions, our, do our words, do they give hope and a future to one another or do they in some way hinder others' futures? In what way are we genuinely blessing others or in what ways are we cursing them? Of course, from there we talked about Jacob's ladder and about we, we looked at how Jacob was almost astonished um, after kind of the gates of heaven are revealed to him. And, and Jacob said, the Lord was here and I didn't even know it. How many of us are living our lives and we aren't even aware that the Lord is right there. And what difference might it make in our lives if we began to realize that the Lord is there with us at all times? We had the third grade Bible dedication Sunday. That was a great Sunday despite the ice storm. That was quite unfortunate timing, uh, as you may recall, or, or maybe you weren't here so you didn't recall it, but there it was, the storm. But what we talked about that day is, is the story of Leah. Leah, kind of the accidental first wife. Leah, the one who was unloved, left behind, left out. And yet when we jump to the New Testament, we saw in the genealogy of Jesus that it was through Leah that Jesus was born. In other words, it was through Leah that the whole world was blessed. Right, And the, the importance, especially for our younger folks, for whom this, I think, is even more acute, of the times of feeling left out, of, of feeling left behind, of feeling unloved, to remember in the midst of that, that God can do remarkable things through you. We talked about, of course, the wrestling with God that Jacob does and, and how there, there is out of that a great blessing, but there is also a limp. Right? And Fritz Breisch came up and did a wonderful job of kind of talking about some of his own experience with the Jeremiah House and how in many ways he has been blessed beyond measure in that ministry. But if he is honest, it has also been incredibly difficult. There have been disappointments, there have been sadness, there have been tears even. But so often our blessings and our limps come from the exact same thing. But then the limp as we discussed during the reconciliation of Jacob and Esau, it is the limp, it is that vulnerability that so often 
allows us to actually enter into relationships with others, to reconcile with others. Remember we had that, 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 uh, that quote by Karl Barth that says, when you share your virtues, you make competitors with others. But when you confess your sin, you make one another brother and sister. There is a remarkable difference between leading with your virtues versus leading with the limp. So after all of that time of being able to see, it's just remarkable to kind of just reflect briefly on on what we have been talking about in the story of Jacob, which then brings us to this week, where it seems like maybe in one sense not a whole lot is happening. But there's actually a couple things that seems to me that are really critical about this or even fascinating that maybe we wouldn't see had we not been traveling with Jacob over the last couple of months. One of them is this interesting thing that Jacob actually renames his last born. Right now, typically, typically in that culture, it was the mother who gave the name to the child. And sure enough, she gave a name and that name was Ben-Oni, Right. But what Ben-Oni means is son of my weeping, son of my tears, which Jacob, apparently, understandably so, was not that keen on. Which, of course, makes sense, though, because if anyone knows the power of a name or the power of being renamed, it is... Jacob, right? Jacob lived for years with that name, the name of struggler or the name of grabbing the heel, that name uh, uh, for most of his life up to this point. And so he decides to change the name to Benjamin, which means son, most think, son of my right hand. In other words, the authority. In other words, excuse me, like this is the one who was important to me. Son, it was very important which is kind of fascinating because actually we begin to see how that shapes Benjamin and his father as well. He, uh, you know, Jacob wanted to get away from having this name kind of shape him in a, in a bad way. But you may recall, this is just a brief aside, but it's always good to remember the context of stories. In years, years later, what happens? Benjamin's only other full brother, right, Joseph, he gets sold into slavery, right? He gets sold into slavery and then all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, easy for me to say, after many years, Joseph becomes a ruler, right? And he begins to help. He distributes food during a famine, right? You may remember all of that. So he distributes food. And so, so then Jacob says, okay, I want all my boys except for Benjamin, son of my right hand, my important son. All the rest of you go get food. And they do, but then they meet Joseph, who they don't realize is Joseph. And they say, hey, okay, you can have some food, Joseph says, but you cannot come back until Benjamin returns. And what does Jacob say to that? No. You cannot have the son at my right hand. And so they went and they went and they got to the point of starvation. Right? He loved Benjamin so much, and this is what we talked about last week, where even those that we love so much, even our own children, can easily become things that we begin to worship to the detriment of them, to the detriment of the parent, to the detriment of all the family. The family was going to starve because he loved Benjamin too much to, let, to think about losing him. Right? Our names, the names we have, have this remarkably shaping power. There's also something else that that I think you can't go through this whole story without being somewhat moved by. 
And that's what we see at the very end of this passage. Where Isaac is there, and as my wife remarked, wait, I thought he was dead, right? I remember at the beginning of this, Isaac was on his deathbed, we thought. Well, somehow he kept holding on, right, for 20 more years at least. But there he is, and he is dying. And we're told that Jacob goes to him. Think about that. After so long, after the betrayal, after the secrets, after the, after the lies, after the pain and the tears, after having run away where it seems like the family is without hope. And all of a sudden in this scene, we see that Jacob goes to him. I know that there are many families in our midst who have been broken apart by deception or lies or secrets or what have you. And it seems to me that this passage is at least some glimpse of hope. That the Spirit is never or always has opportunity to give breath, to give new life to these relationships. There's this beautiful thing happening, but it's also, it seems to me, this great sign of the forgiveness of parents. Parents are remarkably forgiving. And I think you see the sign of Isaac who lives through all of this and yet he cannot wait. And most of us know, I have seen this time and time again, children, sometimes adult children, right, who, who it seems are going astray or going this way or that. But parents are always there willing and longing and desiring to love and to forgive. Right? And can you just imagine after all of this, just the joy of Isaac of saying, absolutely, come, come here. Right? It's also this kind of remarkable glimpse, it seems to me, of the love of God the Father. That no matter where it is that we may have gone, no matter how far away we may have run, that God is always there, much like Isaac, to say, come back. And as soon as we come back, there he is in order to embrace us and to take us in as his own. But there is also in this passage something that's a bit more awkward, it seems to me, or at least a little bit more uncomfortable. It's this strange juxtaposition between death and new life. Between death and new life. These aren't things that we normally want to have close to one another. I I remember a a pastor of mine from seminary who would talk about the fact that uh, in their church, in the little courtyard in the middle, uh, there was a cemetery. And that they would always dismiss their children halfway through the worship and, and they would walk right by that cemetery. And how it always made him uncomfortable to see this new life walking quite so close to death. And we see that, of course, right here, don't we? We see that out of of Rachel's, there is Rachel, and she is dying. She dies in order to give new life to Benjamin. And then we see it again, of course, in the very next, or, or, or further down. We see it in the life of Isaac. I mean, there's something about his being close to death that calls Jacob to go to him. Right, And we see then again Esau and Jacob then kind of furthering their step of reconciliation. We see kind of new life beginning to kind of grow and continue to grow out of the death even of their father Isaac. There's something about 
this close connection between death and new life that we can never forget. Walter Brueggemann says that death always happens in the midst of new life. And that living always seems to happen in the midst of death. There is this close but uncomfortable connection between death and new life. It shouldn't surprise us, of course, because in two weeks we're going to be sitting here and we're going to be celebrating the reality of Jesus' death and then his new life. Right Throughout Scripture, we see this connection between death and new life. Jesus, in fact, in the Gospel of John, he talks about the fact that if a new seed falls, or if a seed falls, and if it doesn't die, then it continues as just one grain. But if it dies, it then begins to bear fruit. And there is this intimate connection between death and new life. We see it when we, when we do our sacraments with communion. We talk about the death of Christ, but how it gives us new life. And we do it, of course, with baptism, right? Traditionally, in a baptism, you would, you would have someone go down as in they were dying and then come back as if they were at new life, right? There's this sense of this connection between death and new life. I was thinking about that as it came to our sixth grade inquirers. Uh, we're going to have three baptisms at the 1030 service. And, and so I was thinking about that. And I, I, I want you to know that this is a remarkable thing. This is in many ways what the inquirers are doing today. is It's, it's kind of a new beginning, if you will. As you know, when, when kids are growing up, right, we, we kind of, we, we hopefully we teach them the faith, right? But even if they're baptized as infants, what we want them to do in a service like this is we want them at some point to confirm that to say, yeah, we're gonna, we take this faith on as our own. And that's kind of what we'll do here in just a few minutes. But it's this beautiful sense. And so a few weeks ago, Pastor Scott and I and several elders, we got to go um, to this confirmation class. They've been meeting over the last several months. And we got to listen to them talk about their faith stories. And they, they used to do that kind of a banner that they had made. Those banners are right outside these doors. I invite you to, to kind of look at them and I tell you, it was remarkable to hear their stories and to hear them wrestle with their faith and to hear them talk about it. You know, we, you know children always have probably gotten a bad rap ever since probably Cain and Abel, right? Which, okay, Cain, it's understandable, but still... Right? They, they, they get a bit of a bad rap oftentimes. Oh, they're not paying attention. They're not listening. And, and oftentimes, right, what happens is they are listening. In fact, sometimes they're listening better than we wish that they were listening, right? And, and so we sit there and we, we, we hear, you know, I was sitting there and we were like listening to them. And I'm not kidding. There were a couple moments when, when, I mean, I almost had kind of tears come into my eyes to hear these children tell their story and to, to see them kind of grapple with their faith. It was really, it was remarkable. If you had been there, maybe we should film it next time because it's really incredible to kind of see. And we love that, right? And we love to see it in our kids. We love that sense of new life. And when they stand up here, you know, and you guys are going to see them up here and they're all wonderful and they're going to be nervous and this is going to be the last place they want to be, but they're going to be up here anyways. And we think this is great. We love this. We love to hear the story and to see new life. What we don't always pay attention to and what we are typically not cognizant of, especially if it doesn't include us, is the fact that for that to happen, the only way for that to happen is for there to be death. There has to be some death of some sort. Spiritually, for those who are up here and saying, yeah, we want to be public about our faith, it means that they are willing to die 
right, to oftentimes their own desires, right? All of us as followers of Jesus, it's this constant kind of sense of dying to something. But, but even more pedestrian, there are deaths that have to happen, right? Those kids who, who went there, you know, week after week, what did they have to do? Well, they had to die to some of the things that they really wanted to do, right? They had to die. I don't know what it is they wanted to do. My kids are too young, but probably they, maybe they wanted to Snapchat. Maybe they wanted to play games. Maybe they wanted to go out and be with their friends. Maybe they wanted to do homework. Well, maybe they didn't die to that, right? But they died to other things, right? They had, to, they had to die to those things. Think about their parents, the parents who brought them in here, you know, each week. What did they have to die to? Well, they probably, there were times they probably had to die to peace at home, right? Sometimes it is easier to not make your children do something, right? Or rather than having to hear them complain. Right? And they had to die to their willingness to say, okay, fine, this is not going to be much fun for me because I'm going to have to listen to you complain, but we're going to go do this anyways, right? We had to be, they had to, the volunteers who came, they had to come and they had to die to their own things. All of these things had to happen, right? There were all of these deaths that had to occur. I want you to be aware of that before you celebrate this new life. The problem is, you see, is that we all want just new life, right? This is the problem with dieting, right? We want new life. Remember the picture? I should have brought that slide again. Remember the picture of me up here where I was looking svelte and it was clearly photoshopped, right? We want that. We want to add new life. That's what we want. We want, oh, we just want those. But we don't want to actually die to anything for that to happen. We don't want to die to our own desires for that to happen. Over the last dozen years or so, I have had the opportunity to, 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 to walk alongside many churches. Some that I have been pastoring, others in a different kind of job I had, just um, churches that I got to kind of consult with or talk to. And, and then, of course, I have a lot of pastor friends and elders that I know from different churches. I want you to know, I have not discovered yet one church that has not said, we want new life. Well, they all want new life. And oftentimes, of course, that means younger people. That's how they understand new life, right? But they want new life. That's what we want, absolutely. And yet, if you take our denomination as an example, 90% of our churches are declining. If you take all the churches in North America, 80% of them are declining. 94% of churches are not keeping up with the growth that is going on around them. Why is that? Is it because they don't want new life? Is it because they don't want growth? Of course not. There are a myriad of reasons, but if I had to guess what the number one reason was, I would say this. It is because they don't want to have to die to anything in order to see that new life. Now, they will tell you they want to, and I believe most folks are honest. They'll say, oh, we're willing to die if we get to have new life. Absolutely. Until you tell them what they actually are going to have to die to. And then they don't really want to do that. You know what actually most of us want? We want the person next to us to die. Or at least their desires and wants to die. We want that. We'll get on board with that if it gives us new life. But unfortunately, that's not the way it works. It always begins with me. Right? It begins with you. It cannot begin, death cannot begin with your neighbor in order to bring new life. Right? We were talking about that in, um, actually we were talking about new life at our 1030 service with our children. Amy Crispin was telling us about the growth that's been happening at the 1030 service with the kids. More and more kids are coming. And we all say, that's fantastic. We love it. That's new life. It's amazing. 
But of course, in order to sustain that new life and have it continue to flourish, guess what some of us are going to have to do? We're going to have to die to beating the brunch rush at Rosie's or Patachu or wherever else it is you go so that we can have people who can help support Amy at that 1030 service. We're going to have to have some of you wake up earlier and come to the 9 o'clock service so that you can help out with 1030. It won't just happen. You don't just get new life. I wish you did. You don't. Right, or think about the guests that we have coming in. We always are having new guests. I can't, rem- I can't believe, I can't remember the last time I did not sign off on a letter sent to somebody who visited us. We love it. Oh, great. We get excited about that. I have, I have not seen anyone come up to me and say, this is great. I have an opportunity now to die today in the gathering space. I want to just hang out with my friends. I don't want to get, I don't want to talk to anybody I don't know. No, if you want new life, when you get out there in that gathering space or you come in this sanctuary, you need to die to something. Either to your desire to just hang out or your fear, I know a lot of people have this, your fear of coming up and thinking someone's new and they've been going here 20 years. I hear that all the time. So let me tell you two things. One is a tip. I use this. And if I said it to you, I'm sorry, but here's what I was doing. I say, now how long have you been going here? One week, first Sunday, or 20 years, there's no risk. But I also want to tell you this, if you say, now you're new, right? And they've been coming here 20 years and they get upset, you let them get upset. It's not that important. They shouldn't get bothered. You know what they should do? They should be excited that someone wants to talk to them, right? Right? So we begin to change that. We have to die to that. You can't just say, you cannot just reap the rewards of new life without also asking in what way must we die? Right? This is true about uh, a few weeks ago we had this congregational meeting and I talked about the fact that we are, gonna, we, are, we are considering, this is not an announcement, we are still at the very early stages of asking how is our building doing at welcoming people? How is our building doing at, at, at being inviting? How is our, how is our building, is it, is, it, is it really able to fulfill our ministries now and how will it be able to do so in the future? We are asking all of those questions Right? And right now, people get excited about those questions. Oh, this would be great. That would be new life. A big, you know, making changes. That's great. That's wonderful. Until, until we begin to tell you, well, you know, this is not actually for you. This is for the people who aren't yet here. But, and this is the real stickler, you know who's going to have to die? We are. Right? In some form or fashion, we're going to have to die to the things that we want. We're going to have to die to this. We're going to have to die to that. Whatever it is, there's going to be a lot of different ways. I am just giving you a warning. If we go in that direction, that all of us are going to be required to die to something in order to see new life. Right? That is always a part of this. Now, here's the good news. CPC has a great track record. ZPC, over the life of this church, I think they have done a remarkable job. I'm not just doing this to kind of make you feel good about yourselves. I am here to tell you, of the many churches I have worked with, there are none that have exceeded my love for the way that I see a congregation that is willing to die in order to see new life. Right? In so many ways, this church continues to have a new church feel. It's not perfect, to be sure, but they continue to kind of be willing, it seems to me, from the very beginning. Right? We, we think about the, kind of the way this church started in a gym and all those kinds of things. That takes a lot of death to get something like that going. 
right? We think about Great Banquet, right? Great Banquet has shaped this church and we love Great Banquet because there's all this sense of, of new life and we talk about that, but do you know what? It takes a lot of death for that to happen. If you don't believe me, if you leave this place and you see some, some Great Banquet team members, they look like death warmed over right now. Right? Why? Because they had to have a death to sleeping, right, over the last few days. And they had to last over the last several weeks, you know, they had to keep coming. There's a lot of death that comes out of that, out of that kind of great banquet experience, if you will. It doesn't just happen. Right? I have seen death. I've seen death in order to kind of get this building together. We've seen death when people are willing to put their, you know, to, to die to their wallets and to the things that they want to do. I have seen death in all those different ways in this for the missions that we do, and it's remarkable. But not only that, I want you to know this one last thing, which is this. We also have a group. I want to bring this up as we bring in, as we're going to bring in our young folks. I want to tip my hat to our older folks. Because I want you to know that one of the things I have discovered, and this is perhaps somewhat ironic, but it is typically those who are growing closer to physical death who are less willing to actually die to things that will bring new life. Sometimes older folks, they would rather just kind of hold on. And I understand there's a lot of scary things. They'd rather hold on to the things that they know than be willing to die in some way that may bring new life. But our older saints, by and large, are not like that. And I want you to know how amazing that is. One of the ways I see that is in the cars that they drive. Now, I can't kind of go through all of this. There's a couple stories that I would really love to tell, but that I won't tell. But I'll just tell one story, which is that we have this beautiful, she's, she's not happy that I'm saying this, but this beautiful 90-year-old woman who is so sweet. She does amazing things. And she walks out and gets in her Dodge Charger and then takes off. <laughs> and it is this strange juxtaposition that you would not always expect, right? And we see that. I mean, again, there are other stories that I could tell you about that, but it's just a symbol, it seems to me, of the sense of saying, no, 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 we're not done. There are things that we have to do, and we will be willing to come alongside and to die to some things in order to see new life. And that is a remarkable blessing. And I want to thank you for that. This is the only time, this passage, where Jacob is called Israel. And there are some, though, some who think that, well, are they really just talking about Israel, Jacob specifically, or are they already now beginning to talk about the family and the country, if you will? It's not... That important. What I want you to hear, though, is that after Rachel died and Benjamin was born, it says this, Israel journeyed on. The people of God journey on. ZPC journeys on. There are ups and there are downs. There are lefts and there are rights. There are blessings and there are limping. There is limping. But the more that we understand that in order for us to have new growth, we are going to have to be willing to die. The more that we will be able to journey on further and further in this mission that God has given to us. The more that each of us, not your neighbor, not the pastor, not that person, this person. The more that I am willing to die. The more that we will see new life as we journey 
So this morning, as these sixth graders, these inquirers come up here, I want you to rejoice to see this new life. But I also want you to be aware that none of that happens unless we are willing to die. And with that, let us pray. God, we give you praise for this remarkable story of Jacob. And we end this morning, Lord, with this reality that this is a journey that all of us are on, that we have been on since the beginning of time. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who journey together, who journey on, and who are willing to die, that we might then be able to celebrate and see new life. It's in your name we pray. Amen and amen.